We've come as far as verse 28 of Mark 10, where it says, Then Peter began to say to him, See, we have left all and followed you. So Jesus answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So, Just before this, Jesus had been speaking to this rich young man who had come to him and asked him what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus shocks the disciples with his statements to this young man. He says, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. He says, it's hard for those who trust in riches. And and they're like, well, who can be saved then? And... uh, Jesus tells him, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, one thing you lack. And he tells him to sell whatever he has, that is, all that you have, and give it to help the poor. And he says, you will have treasure in heaven, take up the cross, which I'm sure was still not understood what he was referring to here, and follow me. The one thing lacking is not the selling of the riches or anything else that he would tell him, commandments. But it's the place of the riches in his heart. He trusts in his wealth rather than trusting in God. His trust in wealth is the symptom of the one thing he lacks. The one thing is placing God first in his life, having no other gods before the true God. Over in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul writes about the love of God, In verse 1, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. If the rich young ruler sold everything and gave it all to the poor. And though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. So if I'm not motivated by God's love, His agape love, as as it's defined later in the chapter, and the only way I can be is if He is first in my life, then it profits me nothing. Even if I offer my body as a burnt offering, you know, in, in my lifetime, there have been various people, usually in, in Asia somewhere, who will douse themselves with flammable liquid and set themselves on fire as a form of protest, you know. Um, that doesn't profit anyone anything. Vows of poverty or self-sacrifice are not in themselves redemptive. What is in my heart? What is my motivation? The Lord is looking for a pure heart. That is, He is first in the heart. The pure in heart shall see God, as we read in Matthew 5, 8, in the Beatitudes. Matthew 6, 33, Jesus says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you, all the things needed for life that the Gentiles seek after, He says. 
This is the kingdom of God first, which means God first in the life, first in the heart. The heart's motivation, the same as God's motivation, the agape love of God. If I have not love, I am nothing, Paul writes. It's so easy for us to be distracted from the main thing or the one thing. There are plenty of distractions, both material and spiritual, in this world. And we need to recall the one thing that is needed as he spoke to this ruler. Over in Luke chapter 10, Jesus comes to visit Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. It's Mary's house, it says. Uh, and or Martha's house, I'm sorry. And Mary is her sister. And Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him. And Martha, of course, is taking care of all the things for the gathering and making sure everybody's taken care of. Says Martha, uh, this is Luke ten forty. Martha was distracted with much serving, and she approached him and said, "Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to help me." It reminds me of those that one man who came to Jesus and said, "Tell my brother to split the inheritance with me." And Jesus said, "Who made me a judge or an arbiter over you folks?" But she says, "You know, my sister's left me here to serve alone. Tell her to help me." And Jesus answers and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things. And, you know, we could put our own name in here and see if it fits. You know, Bob, Bob, you're worried about and troubled about many things. And that's, I'm in that state too often. I'm, I'm a Martha instead of a Mary too many times. And he says, one thing's needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. Sitting at Jesus' feet, placing him first in this situation that they were in. Over in 1 Corinthians 13, I mentioned the definition of love. Uh, in verse 4, Paul begins to describe this love. He says, love suffers long and is kind. That is, after it has suffered long, it's still kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up or proud. doesn't behave rudely. does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And uh, when you hear Chuck Smith speaking on this, he'll talk about when well, you can put Jesus' name in here in the place of love. And it fits perfectly. You know, Jesus, his character is that agape love, which is the character of God. And then he mentions, you can put your own name in here. And you can see how you measure up, you know. And, of course, we will fall short. One thing is needed. That's putting Jesus first. Receiving from Jesus what can be passed on in agape love. This is the one thing in manifestation. The love of God being manifest is the one thing that's lacking when something is lacking. Well, the apostles don't get this yet either. Again, I'm not putting them down. They were chosen by Jesus and his choice proves true. We have what we have because they were faithful to the call. We see them uh, in the Gospels, you know, going through preparation, turmoil, trials. And then we see them 
from the time of Acts onward, we see the work that Jesus has accomplished and begins to accomplish in them and through them by His Holy Spirit who fills them. But they're still being discipled at this point. We all have a natural denseness and obtuseness when it comes to spiritual things. And if that's not you, then I apologize. I, I can't see inside your heart, of course. As Paul Abramson uh, exhorts us sometimes, he, he'll say, Show me, Lord, you know, the situation that needs to be corrected or whatever. I can't quote him uh, directly. But he, and then he says, But please, Lord, be gentle. That's always part of it. Be gentle, Lord. And uh, the Lord is gentle. That's <laughs> word enough for that. Well, Peter, after this encounter with the ruler, Peter's quick in application. And he says, what about us? We gave up everything. We've left all to follow you. So we're definitely saved, eh? We're definitely going to inherit eternal life, right? And uh, in Matthew notes the fact that Peter says, what are we going to have? You know, we've left everything. What do we get? We're ahead of everyone else, right? And Jesus does give him assurance of blessings for anyone who has left any of these things for his sake and the gospels. But the motivation remains central. It has to be for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake. The place of the heart is the vital issue. There is one who left all, who's among these men, but that was not all. Judas left everything, just like the rest of them, to follow Jesus, but he did not give all. Judas left all just as the others, but his heart never belonged to Jesus. You know, that if I give all my stuff up, but I have not love, profits me nothing. His heart was full of covetousness, and he helped himself from the common purse which Jesus entrusted to him. Leaving all doesn't necessarily mean that someone has given all. And so Jesus talks about this leaving of all these things, or really, you know, he says or, which is any of these things. And then when he comes to the blessings of that, he says the ands, which is all of these things. No sacrifice will go unrewarded if it is given with the right heart or the right motive. It's been said you can't outgive God. And that is true. The current reward talked of here a hundredfold is a 10,000% return. In Luke 6:38, Jesus tells them, Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. And it doesn't give any indication of a time frame here as to when it's going to be measured back to you or of what uh, goods this might take, what, what kind of increase is it going to be. Uh, David Guzik says, All who sacrifice for the Lord will be rewarded, but God's way and timing of rewarding may not match up with man's way and the timing of being rewarded. When God rewards, expect the unexpected. You, come to, you, you give to God, God gives to you now and in the age to come. Note that the hundredfold in this time also uh, with the hundredfold comes persecutions. 
you'll get this and this and this and this and this a hundredfold and persecutions. In 2 Timothy 3.12, we know it says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The world is opposed to godliness. And you will suffer if you maintain your integrity when the world demands compromise. Just seeking to live for God will be deemed judgmental. And speaking the truth will be deemed hate speech. And it is. Stand your ground in love. For so they persecuted the prophets and believers in Jesus who have gone before us. So you, you receive all these things hundredfold. The unity of the body of Christ involves one part ministering to another part in accomplishment of the overall mission. Resources are available from different believers for the needs of the moment. In 1 Corinthians, Paul was rebuking the believers for creating factions centered around different teachers. Part of his explanation was that all things were theirs. 1 Corinthians 3, 21-23, he says, Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. Kind of like in Romans 8. He says, All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So all these things that will be uh, added if you put Jesus and the gospel first. The teachers were given, provided for the benefit of the overall body. They were not something over which to divide. And we see this also in this principle in Ephesians 4.16 where Paul talking about uh, Jesus says, From whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. Each part contributing to each other part. And that's what we see here in verse 30. Uh, we see it prophesied here in verse 30 and realized in the early church and since, uh, since the early church when the body's functioning properly. Now this is not something that is demanded of others, you know, well, you shall let me use your house. You shall let me do that. You shall let me do that. But it is something that is accepted when freely offered. We see this in the ministry of Paul. Whenever possible, he worked to provide for himself and his companions. But uh, Lydia compelled him to come and stay at her house when he came to Philippi. And he went. The key is for my sake and the gospels, not for our own sake. Again, placing the Lord and his kingdom and his will first. Private property or property rights are an established principle in God's word and for God's people. But responsibility for the use of the property is also required of us. So God's people are exhorted to hospitality and sharing of the gifts that God has given. They're given for the benefit of the body, not for our own individual benefit. We see this in a number of, we'll just look at a few passages. First Timothy 3.2, this is a bishop or elder, uh, then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. That was a requirement for someone if they wanted to be in leadership. 
1 Peter chapter 4, verses 8-10. through 10. Peter says, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, it is possible to be hospitable and grumble about it. You know. Yeah. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So the gifts that he gives us by the Spirit, the gifts that he gives us in material ways. Uh, and this is an exhortation to believers in general. As is Romans 12:13. he says, Be distributing to the needs of the saints given to hospitality. That's a general exhortation to the believers there in Rome. Hebrews 13.2 says, Don't forget to entertain strangers, for by, by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. They didn't, they didn't realize these were angels that they were showing hospitality to. And uh, more generally, we see some exhortations to sharing. 1 Timothy 6.18, we, re- we read this in relation to those who are rich in this present age, who are believers. He says, let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share. In Hebrews 13.16, he says, don't forget to do good and to share, for which such, with such sacrifices God is well pleased. And this will continue into the age to come, the kingdom age, and no doubt beyond, since this is an essential part of God's nature, this sharing, giving. And Jesus ends this session with uh, those many who are first will be last and the last first. And we see this spoken of in, in various different places. Uh, in Matthew 23, we get some insight into what this means. Uh, 11 and 12, and he'll talk about this here as well. He says, He who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The first will be last, the last will be first. Similarly, in Luke 14, he talks about being invited to a wedding feast. And he says, don't go sit in the best spot, you know, because you're best buddies with the host or whatever. But go and sit in the lowest spot so that, you know, if you happen to be underestimating your value to the host, he'll tell you to come up. And he ends this with, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's much better to humble yourself than to be humbled. Much better option to take the initiative and humble yourself, because you don't know what form being humbled is going to take. And then in Luke 18, verses 10 through 14, this is the passage about the Pharisee and the tax collector going up to the temple to pray. And you know, in in Jesus' day, you know, when he mentioned the Pharisee, he'd probably be the hero. Everybody be, oh yeah, the, the Pharisee, great. And the tax collector, they'd be like, boo. And so Jesus talks about this and how the Pharisee is exalting himself. And his self-righteousness and the tax collector is humbling himself, realizing that he's a sinner and he needs the mercy and grace of God. And in verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Many who are first will be last and the last first. In this same context, 
Jesus teaches in one of the other Gospels about the workers going out to the vineyard and he comes and he hires them in the morning and they agree to work for a denarius. And then he, throughout the day, you know, he gets to the last hour of the day of work and he hires some guys and they go in and then he calls the last to receive their reward first and he gives them a denarius. And these guys have been there since, you know, 6.30 in the morning, whatever time it is. First, first light. They think, oh, we're going to get more. And, of course, they end up with a dinner. And they're complaining. And he's like, isn't this what we agreed on? Yeah, but <laughs> we're not being treated fairly. Well, it's my, it's my property. I'm able to reward as I choose, right? I'm, I can do with what I have, with what, you know, it's, it's my prerogative. If I want to give them the same, what's that to you? And so we find the Lord's reward taking the form that He desires for it to take, whatever situation there is. And we know that, we'll see later, where um, eternal life is by faith. Rewards are based on our faithfulness to what He's called us to do. So we see that distinction. Well, in verse 32 of Mark 10, it says, They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. You know, he's been getting a lot of opposition at this point, and he's headed right for the place where he's been having problems. And as they followed, they were afraid because they knew they were going into a dangerous situation. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests, to the scribes, and they will condemn him to, to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. This is the third time he's told him this. And it still either doesn't register or they're afraid to ask him about it. I mean, Peter responded the first time he said something about this, right? And said, no, this isn't going to happen to you. And he got rebuked. So what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to say? Well, they head from east of the Jordan, which are the area where he's been, and they head to Jerusalem. And so they'll be passing through Jericho at the end of this chapter. And they go up to Jerusalem. It's like Dead Sea is below sea level. It's like 900 feet. Jerusalem's over 2,000, maybe even close to 3,000 feet above sea level. So we're talking a steep climb going up to Jerusalem. Well, they were amazed and afraid. Mark covers in his gospel mostly the ministry of Jesus in the Galilee region. But for the past several years, opposition to Jesus has been growing among the leaders in Judea and in the holy city of Jerusalem. They have tried several times to lay hands on him to kill him already. Thus the disciples feel much trepidation concerning his return to Jerusalem. And Jesus tells them for the third time concerning his suffering at Jerusalem. And he adds a detail he hasn't given them before. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles. This is unthinkable. The chief priests are going to deliver someone who claims to be a Messiah to the Gentiles. And... The Gentiles will mock and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And this is literally fulfilled. You know, we see him being spit upon. He's spit upon by the Jewish council. 
but he's also spit upon by the Roman soldiers and beaten. So once again, they don't perceive what he's talking about, but within a week, they'll be very aware of what he's talking about from a week from here. All along, however, they missed the last statement, he will rise again. And, you know, sometime back they were talking about, what's, he, what's that rising from the dead mean anyway? He's always so enigmatic. And so in verse 35, we get their, their response after he tells them this the third time. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand, the other on your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said to him, Yes, we're able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism that I'm baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So James and John come right after Jesus, shares this with them for the third time. And they have a request. This is but a week or so before the crucifixion. And they're still jockeying for position. That is the highest position in the coming kingdom. The right hand and the left hand were the seats of honor. The right hand was the top spot as Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. And the left hand was the second most powerful position. And they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he replies as if he doesn't know. What do you want me to do for you? And they ask for something hardly worth mentioning. Only the two highest positions in the coming age besides that of the Messiah, the right hand and the left hand positions, sitting on thrones and ruling. James and John may be thinking that this is an obvious request. They have been singled along with Peter, who they do not bring with them here. I mean, there are only two spots available after all. And they they don't bring him here, but they come... uh, to Jesus, or they come with Jesus and Peter on other occasions when the the other disciples were not invited. So obviously, we're the top three. Obviously, Jesus is grooming us for top spots, or so it seems to them. So they're just coming saying, you know, let's make it official. We know the kingdom's about to come. Whatever else these things mean that you've been saying, and so let's let's just make it official. Just tell us, you know, right hand, left hand. We're good with that. That'll be, that'll be sufficient. The disciples were often silent in the presence of Jesus when he would ask them questions. I think partly because when they did speak, they heard a response from Jesus that they did not expect and that was not pleasant to their way of thinking. 
Peter ventures at one time to ask Jesus about forgiveness. In Matthew chapter 18, and he comes to Jesus and says, How many times should I forgive my brother? And the common understanding of the day was three times, so Peter doubles that and adds one for good measure. Should I forgive him seven times? And he may have expected to be commended by Jesus for his generous, forgiving spirit. And of course, Jesus does not commend him, but tells him, no, not seven times, but 70 times seven. Definitely not what he expected to hear. And then Jesus goes on to talk about the parable of the unforgiving servant. He says, if each one of you does not forgive from his heart, then your Father in heaven won't forgive you as well. Okay, so maybe I won't volunteer anything for a while. I'll just be quiet. They may have had that proverb in their day that I have often heard in ours and apply to myself. It's better to be quiet and be thought a fool than to speak up and remove all doubt. That's probably an expansion of Proverbs 17:28, where it says, Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. And he probably is being wise in shutting his lips. And so, Jesus responds, you don't know what you asked. These guys still have a lot to learn about prayer. And that's what this is. They probably don't recognize it as prayer, but they're making a request of God, albeit God in the flesh. This would make prayer and answers much simpler if he was with us in, with us in the flesh. Uh, what would you have me do, Lord? Should I turn right or left? Well, go left. Go to the top of this hill. Okay, I can do that. Now what? We're told that we now see through a glass darkly, but then, that is in the resurrection, we shall see face to face. Prayer sometimes seems like speaking long distance with a less than ideal connection. And what these men are doing is what is later described by the other James, the Lord's half-brother in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Where he says, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. They were asking amiss because they were asking for selfish reasons on the basis of personal desire or selfish ambition. And look, for all I know, we'll get there and James and John will be at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus. I don't know who those places have been prepared for. And, and if that's the case, we might ask, Lord, why are James and John at your right and left hand? And he may say, well, they're the only ones who asked. <laughs> but if they are the two, they will not be the same as they are here. They don't get what it takes to be great in the kingdom at this point. Um, not long before this, as they were coming down through Samaria on his last trip to Jerusalem, Luke 9, verses 51 through 56, he goes through Samaria and they go to find provisions for him and they, they won't receive him. They just reject him. He says, because his face was set to go toward Jerusalem and James and John. So you want us to call down fire out of heaven and destroy them like Elijah did? And Jesus says to them, you don't know what spirit you are of. They didn't yet realize the agape love that was prevailing, characteristic of their God. Later they do get it. 
James is the first apostle martyred for Jesus and for the gospel's sake. John comes to recognize what makes one great in the kingdom. In his gospel, John 13, 34 and 35, this is not too long after this point in Mark's gospel. Jesus is gathered with them, this private time he has with them in the upper room. And he says in verse 34 of John 13, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And the agape love of God is emphasized in John's life and ministry from Jesus' resurrection onward for many decades. And as Paul writes, we quoted from 1 Corinthians 13 earlier, uh, in verse 13 he says, Now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. It's the main thing. But currently they have a lot to learn about prayer. Jesus is so patient with them and that should be an encouragement to us. Things will be radically different for them when the Holy Spirit comes. Oh, what a difference the Holy Spirit makes. We're encouraged to let our requests be made known to God in prayer. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Be anxious for nothing, don't worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. The peace of God can guard our hearts and minds if we lay it all out before God in prayer. We can then be confident and at peace knowing that He will do what is best in each situation or with each request. So we're to pray without ceasing. A running dialogue with the Lord, as we're told in 1 Thessalonians 5.17. Jesus asked these guys then in return, are you able to drink a cup and be baptized with my baptism? Referring, of course, to his coming suffering and ensuing death. In Luke 12:50, he tells them, I have a baptism to be baptized with and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. This task that he was facing on our behalf. So their suffering... These men and any suffering we experience will not approach the magnitude of his suffering, the suffering we have earned and deserve. But our suffering is suffering nonetheless. May our suffering be the fellowship of his suffering, suffering for righteousness sake and not suffering due to our own fleshly actions. They still have no idea what he's talking about when he tells them he's going up there to be betrayed and killed and rise again. But yeah, we're able. We can handle handle it. No problemo. We can tell you don't know us as well as you think you do, Jesus. This is their macho attitude. But before they can drink the cup and partake of the baptism, they will desert him and run for cover and self-preservation. Confidence in the flesh. Never a good thing. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we, we use this for all sorts of different things. You know, he's talking about he's able to be have a lot and he's able to have nothing. And he's content with that. But he is our strength in any situation. We can do all things through 
Christ who strengthens us. But he also said in Romans 7.18, I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. So we must walk in the Spirit if we are to please God. So these guys are confident and he tells him, yes, you will drink and you will experience this baptism. And baptism, you know, it doesn't get translated. We just take the word over into English. It's immersion. They're going to be immersed in the same suffering, same type of suffering that he experiences. Jesus doesn't give them no answer. He simply says the request is not his to grant. And this reminds us that admission to the kingdom is by grace through faith, but position in the kingdom will be determined by faithfulness to Christ and what he has called each one of us to do. So the other ten disciples hear what James and John have asked, and they become greatly displeased with James and John. They were indignant in the same way Jesus was when the disciples sought to prevent the children from coming to him. It's the same word. Why were they indignant? Because they wanted to sit at the right hand or the left hand. What are they trying to do? Jump the line here, you know. Uh, they were more than a little perturbed with James and John. Maybe because they were definitely deserving of one of those two spots. So Jesus calls them all together, the good, the bad, and the ugly, so that he can once again instruct them in servanthood. He has already addressed this once briefly back in Mark chapter 9, the previous chapter, verse 33, when he came to Capernaum. And they, uh, when he was in the house, he asked him, what was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? And they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. And he sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, if anyone, wants to desire, or anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. So he's already spoken to this. Uh, to them once, and this is a continual dispute among them until probably the moment when they all deserted him and ran. Luke tells us that this dispute was continuing even in the upper room at the Last Supper in Luke 22. This is as, you know, they're there at the table and all, and they're still disputing who's going to be the greatest. The fact that they forsook him in the garden had a tendency to humble their own expectations and aspirations of themselves. And it softened them as clay in the hands of the potter. But Jesus gets more specific here in his teaching on servanthood. Jesus cites the Gentiles as an example. Those considered rulers lorded over them, the great ones. That is, in their own estimation, they exercise authority over them. In Luke 22, this place at the Last Supper, Jesus expounds on this as well. So he's saying, later he's saying the same thing, like a week later. He says, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them are called benefactors. He's got that in quotes, benefactor. You know you're in trouble when those who exercise authority over you call themselves your benefactors. You know that's a problem. He says, but not so among you, as he'll tell them here. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be the younger. He who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table or he who serves? Is not he who sits at the table, yet I am among you as one who serves. And we know in this same context, he took the place of the lowest servant and he washed their feet at this supper. So he says, 
who's great, or the one sitting at the table that should be served, which was his position. But I am among you as one who serves. The idea here is that of oppression. God does not like it when someone oppresses someone else, whether they're in government or otherwise. Peter later exhorts elders in the church in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 1. He says, The elders who are among you, I exhort, I who am a fellow elder, you know, take the authority of um, being the rock, but he says, I'm a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. There are many... Recently, recent years, there have been been many pastors and church leaders whose power has gone to their heads and they've lorded it over the congregation, the flock where they are. And and sometimes it's come out and they've been dismissed and they've had huge congregations and multi-campuses and radio ministries, probably TV ministries. Uh, But... All the time, they're not being examples to the flock. Rather, they're abusing the flock. They're beating the sheep rather than feeding the sheep. So this was a message that was taken to heart by the apostles as they came to understand what Jesus was telling them. This admonition has been ignored by many false teachers and cult leaders who oppress the people in their sphere of influence. God often speaks against those who are oppressors of others. One of the reasons Jesus came was to set free the oppressed. We find him quoting this from Isaiah in Luke 4.18 when he reads from Isaiah. He says, um, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And those who, are, who oppress will have a big price to pay. In Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, when Jesus is, or when Peter's speaking uh, at Cornelius' house, he's telling them, you know all these uh, things that have happened. Acts 10, 38, he says, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. He is the author of oppression, the devil. Oppression is the arbitrary and cruel exercise of power. And God speaks again. You'll find God speaking against this throughout Scripture. In Psalm 10, 17, and 18, he says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. Those days are coming to an end. In Zechariah 7 and verse 10, it says, Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother, that he might oppress his brother. These, you know, The widow and the fatherless, they're easy targets of oppression. Unfortunately, in the land of the free and the home of the brave, we now have a government that oppresses its citizens. 
It's been building for a long time now, but we are seeing it come to great fruition in our day. In addition, employers are acting in oppressive ways toward their employees, demanding unjustly and cruelly that the employees act in ways that may be dangerous to their health and well-being. Then there are the social media giants who have set themselves up as the arbiters of truth and facts. They oppress those whose opinions are, differ from their own. All of these are examples of lording it over others. And, well, we're in good company if we are oppressed. If we are oppressed by someone, anyone, we're in good company because Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed by us. For us, oppressed and afflicted for us. If they oppressed him, then we can expect that they will oppress us. That's part of persecution. We are called to be as he was if we are treated as he was treated. We must continue in faithfulness and obedience to him if we want to receive the reward that he has promised. So Jesus goes on and gives the direction the directive for his followers. It's the opposite of the way of the world. He says, it shall not be so among you. You shall not lord it over others. Now, Guzik calls this a stinging rebuke to the manner in which the modern church looks to the world for both its substance and style. Plainly, the church is not to operate the way the world does. Now, in the recent decades, again, there have been many seminars on leadership church seminars where they brought in leaders from the secular world and they have taught the sessions. That might be appropriate in some situations where the leader leaders are believers, but they have brought in many unbelievers. That's not instruction for the church. It shall not be so among you. Leadership in the church is not the same as leadership in the world. Uh, Chuck Smith said, Nothing destroys a man's spiritual life faster than a self-seeking desire for power and prestige. Do you desire to be great in God's kingdom? Learn to be the servant of all. The word servant here is diakonos, from which we get our word deacon. Translated in some places as minister. This is the correct meaning of the word minister. It means to be a servant. It's not a high position. It's the position of a servant. Um, you know, European countries, a lot of their uh, people in the legislature are referred to as ministers. And you have prime minister. That's supposed, that's supposed to be the top servant, which means he's supposed to be at the bottom serving. Right? And some of them, if you have the right attitude, then uh, some of those people are seeing it as service. Um, you know, our government's supposed to be working for us, but unfortunately we're working for them now. I'm just talking about the way our, our government was set up and the founding of our nation. So if you desire greatness, then take the place of the servant, the lowest place, and let the Lord exalt you in his due time. He said, whoever wants to be first shall be the slave of all. If someone wants to be first, not just great, but the greatest, then he should become the slave of all. Slave is doulos. Or bond servant. That is someone who is bound to someone else as a servant. 
in the society of Jesus' day, this could be either involuntary or voluntary. You could choose to become a bondservant and be bound to this person for life or until they released you. They could release you at a point, but that would be up to them. Or it could be involuntary because slavery was common in the Roman society and there were slaves who were bought and sold. In relation to our relationship to the Lord, this means uh, this slave, this doulos, is one who gives himself up to another's will. Those whose service is used by Christ in extending and advancing his cause among men. One who is devoted to another to the disregard of his own interests. Peter, Paul, James, Jude, they all referred to themselves in their letters as bondservants of the Lord Jesus. This has to be a voluntary servanthood or slavery for our following Jesus must be chosen freely. So it's a voluntary bond service to him. In verse 45 here in Mark 10, he says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. This is like uh, the gospel message in a nutshell here. Here and elsewhere, Jesus affirms the substitutionary atonement and was, that was prophesied in the Old Testament scriptures and that he has been telling his disciples about as he approaches Jerusalem and the crucifixion. He gives himself as an example of servanthood and later will present a very practical illustration in taking the place of the lowest servant in the household and washing the disciples' feet. He tells them explicitly in John 13:15, I've given you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Not, he's not speaking in direct regard to foot washing, but in regard to servanthood. Jesus served them in this way at the end, but his entire life was one of service to the needs of others and ultimately meeting everyone's need of redemption. He provides the only means of redemption. There are many today that deny this truth of a substitutionary sacrifice, claiming to be Christians. But in order to do so, they must also deny the heart of the gospel message. First John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, John writes and says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. And not only... For ours only, but also for the whole world. That propitiation is the big $10,000 word, you know. Um, but it simply means that Jesus satisfied God's wrath with his sacrifice so that his wrath is no longer poured out or applying to those who believe in him and who trust in him. It's uh, this. The same form of this word is used in the New Testament for the mercy seat that was in the Holy of Holies. And so that is where the blood is sprinkled and you have propitiation made for the sins. It's also spoken of by Paul in Romans 3, 23-26 where he says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness 
that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a word of high significance. And so the, the Christianity of those who deny the substitutionary atonement is no Christianity at all. Some in the emergent or emerging church movements have gone so far as to liken the idea of God the Father laying our sins upon Jesus to divine child abuse. The only benefit they see in Jesus' suffering is as an example to us as to how we should suffer. Yes, but it accomplished far more than that. First Peter 1. Let's start in verse 18. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. So his blood paid for us, bought us. Revelation chapter 5, uh, speaking of uh, John having this vision in heaven and the uh, there's this uh, lamb that comes in verse 7 of Revelation 5. This lamb comes and takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You've redeemed us to God by your blood, ransomed. He made himself a ransom for all. His blood paid the price of redemption. Jesus said of himself, the Father and I are one. This was a plan of redemption conceived of and carried out by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There was no force involved in Jesus' sacrifice. There was no abuse. He was oppressed by man. He was not oppressed by his father. Just as Isaac went willingly as a sacrifice, a type of the sacrifice of Christ, so Jesus gave himself up. So we see in Isaiah 50, uh, 53, 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. There is an exchange that has been made. His righteousness for our sinfulness. And Brian Duncan has a song, Strong Medicine. He says, it's a, it's a priceless for the worthless trade. There is a medicine. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 2, we'll conclude with this. Verse 1, it says, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved. And to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. 
This clarifies for us when Jesus says He didn't come to be served, but to serve and give His life a ransom for many. That many that He's giving His life a ransom for is it's all. He gave Himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. He's paid the price of redemption for all. Only those who receive that price will be redeemed. 